welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. I think one of the, the, the sad things um, um, about living in this day is that, you know, if you read the Bible, there are a lot of um, agricultural kind of references, right? And this city, you know, that we live in Singapore, you know, it's as far from agricultural as far can be, right? Yeah. Right, you know, and, and a bunch of like symbolism, bunch of uh, references to agricultural stuff uh, in the Bible. Um, but how many of you know that? the preparation of the seed is as important as the preparation of the ground to which the seed is sowed into. Are you all alive? Yes? Okay. How many of you know that the preparation of the seed is as important as the ground to which it's sowed into? How many of you will be offended if I came up this morning and I did zero preparation? I just opened the Bible and like, any of you have a verse that you like to talk about? And there we, we talked about it. How many of you will, will be slightly peeved, slightly like, wow, this guy never do his homework. How many of you will, will, will feel a bit peeved, yes? Yeah? There's a bit of expectation for me to prepare something, yes? How many of you know that the preparation of the seed is as important as the ground to which it's sowed into? My invitation to us as a faith community, and if you're here for the first time, this is not really for you, this is more... Hey, family, let's, let's talk real. My, my invitation to you as a faith community, as people who are part of this family, is to come on Sunday morning, prepared. The soil in, the, in your heart, the, the grounds in your heart, prepared, ready to receive uh, the seed, to receive God's word. Come ready to engage. Come ready to encounter. Come expectant to meet God through his word. Don't, don't come and approach the Word of God passively. The Word of God is not an archaic piece of literature. It's an active, living, breathing conversation. And there's an invitation for you and me to engage with God through His living Word. How many of you know that context is very important? Yes, context is very important. You know, um, I look at context like, you know, if you buy a diamond ring, uh, uh, let's say, you know, I, I got married, you know, and... For my engagement ring, if let's say, you know, instead of buying Amy a diamond ring, I've just bought her a plain old diamond. Uh, yes, she would appreciate it, but I think she would appreciate the diamond having a setting a lot more, yes? The setting actually makes the diamond flourish. It actually makes the whole diamond, to, to be honest, make sense, right? Whatever I'm about to say has to have its context. And the context to which I'm about to bring this word has, you have to view this word and hear this word in light of the five weeks that we've been on, and in light of uh, the, the entire journey of the church to some extent. Am I making sense? You have to have this context, you know, and, you know, I, I, I'm giving a lot of preface, you know, I, I, don't, I don't talk about stuff like this very often. It's not because I, I don't want to, because I, I feel that... Um, that there needs to be a grace, you know, whenever stuff like that is talked about, whatever I'm about to talk this morning. The last time I spoke about something like this, you know, it was, interestingly, two years, uh, two years ago, this very Sunday, I, I shared a sermon called uh, An Unstoppable Force, you know, and really called the church to a greater level of devotion and consecration to the Lord. And um, two years on, you know, I feel that there's no better way to end a series on the soul than talking about the eternal destination of the soul. This is by far the weightiest and most important question that we have to answer as Christians living on the earth. Where is our eternal destination? Where are we going to end up? Through this series, you know, we talked about different things. We talked about managing emotions. We talked about um, finding your significance. We talked about being free from accusation. We talked about embracing the freedom, the life, the satisfaction that God has intended for us. But there's no greater question that we have to answer than the question of eternity. The soul was created by eternity for eternity. And the trouble we run into is that when we try to satisfy something that is eternal with temporal things, temporal things that will never 
truly and fully satisfy. And so if the soul is created by eternity, for eternity, then can it be safe to assume that the question of eternity should plague your very soul? Alive? Good ground people, are you okay? Yes? Are you all with me? The question of eternity. You okay? Let's pray before we start and before I lose you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that is an invitation to encounter you. Lord, we ask that in this life, we will not live uh, based on popular opinion. We will not live based on what's culturally acceptable. We will not live based on what's normal, but we will live in accordance to your word. Lord, we ask this morning that your word will so prune us, will so prune our hearts, will so rid the things that are not of you. And Lord, we ask for your word to so call us to a higher standard of living. Let us not be satisfied with the same or with what is normal, but let us pursue with all that is within us, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let us pursue the upward calling we have in Christ Jesus. Let us pursue lives that seek to be molded and conformed into your very image. God, we ask that you will help us by your grace this morning. We are expectant to meet you here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> you know, I'm in, I'm in a stage of life where um, you know, we got married and uh, we are looking at different houses. You know, and The advantage of, of uh, applying a BTO is that you, know, you, um, you get a brand new spanking flat. You know, it's very nice, very new, very clean. Toilet bowl that nobody used before. Uh, and which is just good knowledge, you know. And, um, but there's also like a lot of cost um, that you save when you get a new flat. You know, it, it usually comes cheaper. But um, also, like, you know, the renovation is a lot cheaper because, you know, things are all new. And so you have to do, you, you do basically abandonment. It's all the things that you buy are just add-on to the things that are already present, yes? Comes with new floors, new toilets. And so you just add on stuff, you know, carpentry, whatever have you, to beautify the place. It's, you pay for the add-ons. But when you buy a, res a resale flat, it's completely different. You, know, you come in and you see like the most interesting decor ever. You know, we went into a flat and like someone brought down the ceiling for some reason. You know, and which we <laughs> cannot compute. And uh, and somebody thought that his doorway was just not where he wanted his doorway is, so he covered it up with a shelf and hacked open another doorway on the other side of the wall. And we're like, okay, that's. Very interesting, sir. Um, but with a, with a resale flat, you know, there, there comes a lot of cost because in your renovation, most of it is like you're tearing down everything, you're overhauling everything, you are getting rid of the old stuff and you're overhauling the whole flat and then you're putting in new stuff and so there's a lot more cost involved. Our salvation ought to look less like an add-on and more like an overhaul. Buy a resale flat, is what I'm saying. No. Our salvation ought to look less like an add-on and more like an overhaul. Christians today, you know, I, I wouldn't say most, but there are Christians today who live as though Jesus is but an influence, but one of many influences in life. Christ, the church, the Christian community is but an add-on, a value add unto a ready or a already established life. But Christ wants to overhaul your life. He wants it all. He wants to be Lord over your life. Am I making sense? The Bible speaks about a life like that. You know, through the Bible, we read about the life of the disciples. So they were one who were sold out, who were given to the cause of Christ who paid a price, who followed the Lord, who were given to Him, who served. And the Bible calls this life a life of discipleship. The word discipleship is thrown around in church a lot. You know, we hear it all the time and we know that it is one of the core mandates given to the church. Right? We are called to disciple nations. But most of us today wouldn't really know what the word disciple actually means and what it actually implies. 
in the life of the believer. Just like you know, a lot of the agricultural references are lost today, so is the word discipleship or disciple. Its true meaning, its true essence has been lost over time. Today, disciple looks like I come to church on Sunday morning. I go to church and I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. But how many of you know that in the early church, the notion of go to church is completely foreign to them? Absolutely foreign to them. They were the church. What do you mean we go to church? I am the church. And part of me being the church is I gather with my fellow church people. Church is not a place you attend. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It's a conviction that you live with. And so the word disciple is actually really interesting, you know. Um, it actually comes from a practice where young Jewish boys, you know, growing up, they would um, seek to learn. They would seek to grow. And uh, part of that process is that they would um, seek out mentors, leaders, teachers called rabbis. And once they have sought out that particular rabbi, it is said that the Jewish boy would follow and serve that rabbi for an extended period of time. And the myth goes, a traditional Jewish rabbi with a student, with a protege, would not even be able to see his own shadow because his pupil was so close to him. Discipleship implies serving. It implies attentiveness. It implies intentionality to learn, to grow, to serve. That is what the word disciple means. If we flip it around and examine our lives, can we then say that as professed disciples of Jesus Christ, that our lives are a life of service, attentiveness, and intentionality to learn to serve, to grow? And you see this flip to Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. It goes like this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Verse 26. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? How many of you know what the word Christian means? Christ follower, yes. You may have always thought and approached Christianity in this manner, that Christianity means a change in my schedule, a change in my choice of literature. I read the Bible instead of other books. On Sunday, instead of going out for brunch, I go to church. Christianity might look like a positive influence to you. Christianity might look like a value add to you. Christianity might look like I have a, another option for community. All these things are great. Read your Bible, go to church, have community, find hope. Great, amazing things. But Jesus seems to suggest that to be a Christ follower looks a lot more than what we have traditionally associated Christianity with. To be a Christ follower implies that you ought to take up your cross and follow Him. How many of you know that that is not in reference to a literal cross? Right? It doesn't mean that when you go out here, if you become a Christian, we all have little necklaces with cross for you that you can wear and we are all part of a Christian cross club. <laughs> no, right? No, but, you know, I, I, I mean part of approaching this verse is that we have to approach it from the lens of the people who heard it, of the people who read it. Imagine being a little Jewish boy, okay, standing there and being taught that, hey, to follow Christ, take up your cross. What would it mean and what would it imply to the people of that day? The people of day knew that cross-carrying comes with it certain inconveniences, right? How many of you know that many well-meaning preachers preach a very comfortable Christianity? Hey, if you are tired, if you are lacking, if you are sad, if you are not glad, if you are upset, 
that your, di- your, your dad didn't buy things that you wanted, you know, come to Christianity and everything's going to be okay. Come to this happy place. You know, I believe that that, 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 that is an aspect of the gospel. You know, Jesus does promote, promise blessings. But how many of you know that he does not promise blessing apart from suffering? He does not promise a good and happy life void or discomfort. A Christian life okay, does not come with the promise of comfort. Carrying your cross. How many of you know that carrying your cross is a defining act, is a defining thing? If you don't believe me, okay, later you can come up here, you can steal my pulpit, and for the rest of the week, you can carry my pulpit around. <laughs> How many of you know that whether you, no matter whether you are male, female, rich, poor, old, or young, when you carry around this pulpit for an extended period of time, you will no longer be known by what you can do, you'll no longer be known even by your name. You'll be known as crazy pulpit person. Right? You'll be known as crazy pulpit person. Okay? Carrying a cross is defining. It's defining. It defines you. Does your Christian walk define you and define all that you do? Is Christianity just an influence or value add? Or has it become a value system that has permeated everything that you do, that has become the very essence of your lifestyle? a conviction that you live by? Or is it just a value add? Just a token thing I do on Sunday? And this is the last thing that that, that I want want to share about cross-carrying. Every single person that saw a man, a woman, who carried a cross, knew that that cross-carrying would last forever. The person who carried that cross and marched up that hill would never come back. When you think about carrying a cross, do you have eternity at, in your heart? Do you think of forever? Or do you still live by the day to day? Not recognizing that whatever you do on planet Earth carries with it eternal ramifications. Am I making sense? This is what it, it, uh, I want to say to you. The soul is eternal. And because it is eternal, it has an eternal destination. And the Bible promises that and says, you know, there is one of two eternal destinations. Life after death. You either go to heaven, a place of great joy, a place of great delight, a place of great satisfaction, or you go to hell, a place of torment and suffering. The question I want to pose to you today is, do you know where your soul is going? And this is fundamental doctrine, theology. We talked about it all the time in church. But it's really easy to lose sight, to lose uh, understanding and weight of the real important issues. Not in this life, but in life after death. It is of utmost importance crucial, imperative that you have that question answered. Following Jesus looks like carrying your cross. looks like inconvenience. It looks like discomfort. It looks like forever. Eternal commitment. Today, the word follow almost has a nearly opposite uh, implication, right? In that day, following Jesus meant you could very well be killed for that decision. There is like a weighty, weighty cost to it. Follow being someone implies cost, implies responsibility. But today, you know, follow looks like a click of a button. You get access to information, you get access to knowledge, you get access to intimacy even without any form of responsibility. Zero for responsibility. You know, I mean, let me make some observations and suggestions. I think that that is extremely dangerous because you're saying that you belong. You're saying that, okay, you are connected. Okay, you have access to information, 
to knowledge, to intimacy. But there is no personal responsibility that is birthed from that. And intimacy without responsibility is the most dangerous, is one of the most dangerous things that you can partake in. Intimacy without responsibility. Catch this. You're all familiar with Judas, yes? Not personally in the Bible. <laughs> Judas, okay? It said that when the disciples took communion, when they were partaking in that sacred act, that act that, that talks about partaking in the body of Christ, that act that signifies covenant and commitment, at that moment when the disciples were about to take communion, Judas stood up and excused himself from the table and he left. He excused himself from that responsibility of covenant. And we all know that Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Into mercy without responsibility. That is what is the prevailing spirit over the sin of pornography. Into mercy without any form of responsibility. You experience intimacy, but there's no form of commitment, covenant, responsibility. And the life of the believer has to be marked by a life that's given to intimacy with the Lord. But not just that, we are not passive in life. We are active in embracing personal responsibility for our faith and for the faith we so profess to live by, walk in. We are Christ's followers. We carry our cross. Am I making sense? Yeah. <laughs> Matthew 16 says this, you know. And the tail end of, of that, that great revelation that Jesus has just brought to his people that following me looks like carrying a cross. And then he says this, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? How many of you know that to lose your soul doesn't imply that you are lost in a GPS, mess you up kind of, kind of meaning? Right? It doesn't mean that you are directionally challenged. The word lost uh, in that verse, it means this. It means to forfeit something that carries with it a permanent penalty. To forfeit something that carries with it a permanent penalty. That to me doesn't sound like a direction issue, but that sounds like a destination issue. This series, we've called it Soul Prosperity. And it's interesting that the word that's used to describe prosper in the Bible is the same word that's used to describe salvation. The greatest prosperity you can have in life, in your soul, is the gift of salvation. It's my phone that's, that's recognizing my voice. He who has ears, let them hear. Good phone. I'm making sense. The greatest prosperity you can have to your name is a soul that is saved. It's a soul that is secured in its salvation. That's guaranteed eternity with God. You know, we are all not uh, 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 unaware of uh, the news that the great evangelist Billy Graham um, passed on this week at 99 years of age. 60 years of ministry. 200 million people saved in 186 countries. Legacy. General. Amazing. You know, I, I want to encourage you, buy the books, his biography, watch the videos, you know, feed yourself on, on that legacy. But I think what struck me is that you know, they, different people were uh, posting different quotes uh, from Billy Graham. And, and this quote has struck me, and it goes like this. Here we have the quote. It says this, and Billy Graham said this himself. He said, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I would just have changed my address. I would have gone into the presence of God. What gives a man that measure of absolute confidence? 
to say that life on earth is but a vapor. This thing is but a temporal thing. But when I die, there is a life far more glorious, eclipsing every ounce of suffering and pain that I have experienced on earth. There's a life far more glorious than I'm about to experience when I die. The question I have to you this morning is, are you possessed with that measure of confidence that you know without a shadow of a doubt that life after death for you is one of bliss, joy, and satisfaction? I don't know about you, though, when, but when I take a math paper, eons ago, but when I take a math paper, the way I approach a math paper is this. You know, I usually flip to the back. I skip all the, 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 the small mark questions and I go to the back and I find the big 20 mark question fellas, you know, and I do those first. Why? Because, you know, I've been known to not be able to finish my math paper and the, the time is just too short. And so I go to the questions that are weightier. I go to the questions that carry more weightage. And today, I, I want to say to you, don't yeah, it, it might sound like I'm telling you to ignore the other questions that plague you, but I'm saying to you this morning that it is imperative, paramount for you to answer the question that matters most. The question of eternity. Do you know where your soul is going to go? How do you know? Somebody told you? You might have come to a revelation that I think I'm a pretty good person. I've done enough good things to, to shift the skills of karma and I deserve heaven. You know, you might have heard it from someone else. You might have heard it from the pulpit like, oh yeah, yeah, I think I'm going to heaven. How do you know? How do you know for absolutely sure? We have to answer the weightier question before Time's, time runs out. Question of eternity. It's a question of eternal destination. Today, my sermon title is this. Soul prosperity. The crux of the matter. The crux of the matter. And this is what the crux of the matter means. It means the absolute fundamental point that underpins an issue. What is the crucial important point pertaining to the soul that we need to discuss as a faith community? We have heard all through the series that the soul was created by eternity for eternity. I believe that the crucial question we need to talk about and answer is on the subject of eternity. Subject of eternity. Now, most of us, we base our eternal security on the fact that we prayed a prayer X amount of years ago. If I ask any of you here today, you know, how do you know that you're going to heaven? You're like, oh... I gave my life to Jesus when I was this age. I prayed the prayer. I'm good. You know, it's almost like an initiation kind of thing. You know? I just did it and, and I'm good. But I, I want you to read this passage of scripture in Acts chapter 2 for me, uh, with me. Acts chapter 2. And this is talking about the people's response after they heard the gospel preached to them by the apostle Peter. It goes like this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Next slide. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For some reason, we have downplayed the response to salvation from, uh, to the call of salvation from repentance, baptisms, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and we have dissected all that to all you need to do is pray a prayer. This is the benchmark that was set in Scripture. Repent, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The word repentance just doesn't mean simply proclamation, but the word repentance literally means to shift, to turn away from 180 shift and live a completely different life, pursue a completely different trajectory. Salvation just doesn't look like Lord, I'm sorry, and then you still stay in that same lane. Still be preoccupied with the same things. Salvation to the people in that day looks like a complete change in lifestyle, a complete change in value systems. For most Christians, you know, it's, Christianity looks like 
I profess I'm a Christian, but there is no shift in their value systems. Does your life reflect to one Christian? Does your life reflect the proclamations and the professions that you make? Making sense? I remember my first meeting with Bill Johnson, you know, when, when I uh, had the opportunity to meet him. I remember um, going for that meeting, you know, uh, two weeks before the meeting, I heard about the meeting and uh, I was like, okay, this guy knows God and probably has like some like crazy spiritual vision seen to my very soul and see like all the junk and stuff in me. And so, I can't not, two weeks before I met him, I went on a fast. Uh, <laughs> And Andre don't fast, man, you can tell. And uh, Andre needs to fast more. And so I went on the fast, you know, I read my Bible more, and uh, I, I, uh, I was like, you know, I have a good hour with him, and so I prepared all my questions. I have, like, you know, all the stuff ready, and I, was like, I planned out the conversation. I know where it was going to go, and I spent two weeks preparing for that meeting, yeah? Because Bill was a really important person to me, you know, as an inspiration, he was a real hero of mine. I'm sure, you know, a good chunk of you have met like important people before, yes? Your boss, your manager, and you spent a copious amount of time preparing for that, you know, and really, really like prepared yourself for that. Yes. Yeah, we can all agree in that, yes, you know. This is a very natural thing to do. The Bible talks about a day where we will stand before God and give an account for our lives. We will stand before the most significant an important being in all of existence and answer the most important question that we ever have to answer. Give account for our lives. It's interesting that we prepare more for meetings with these so-called important, created people than we prepare for that meeting that we're about to have before the Lord. The Bible says this, that that day would be a great and terrible day. How many of you know that it's not natural for those two words to come to go together? You know, like Desmond's birthday was great and terrible. You know, <laughs> it's not something I'll say, right? Those two words don't go, go together. This is what it means to me. I believe that day will be great, will be glorious for some, for those who have their lives right, for those who are in line the kingdom of God. But for those who aren't, that day would be absolutely terrible. The Bible says this, that in that day, it's either he says to you, good and faithful servant, come into my rest, or depart from me, for I never knew you. What would you like to be the statement over your life on earth? All of this life, all of what we are doing is in preparation for that one moment. We stand before Almighty God and give an account for our lives. The best thing you can do for your soul, for your soul to prosper, is to pursue Christ, to pursue what it means to follow Him with all your heart, soul, and mind. Beyond all the stuff that we talk about, emotions, beyond all the stuff we talk about, significance, about dealing with accusations, those things are important. But the weightiest question, the most important question we have to address and answer is that of eternal security or eternal destination. This is not something to play around with. This is not something to be trifled with. This is not something to be glanced over. But this is something to be wrestled be approached. I'm making sense. Are good? Just a couple more thoughts before I, I, I land the plane, you know. You might ask yourself the question, though, that does, you know, I already said I'm a Christian, you know, can Christians go to hell? You know, I don't know whether you, you guys, you know, you, you wrestle with that question. You know, there's a popular theology and doctrine, it goes once saved, always saved. And uh, it's, it's a doctrine that some you know, hold to, you know, that once you have professed salvation in God, that you are once and forever saved. Because you did not earn your salvation, therefore you can't lose your salvation. 
um, you know, there are many like layers to it and many um, things that we can go into. But you know, I, I won't even I, w- I won't attempt to go into the intricacies of uh, addressing that position. And this might not satisfy the theological junkies in our, in our midst, but here's my position when it comes to salvation. Don't chance it. Don't chance it. What if you are wrong about your once saved, always saved doctrine? What if you're wrong? Because, you know, that has produced good fruit, but the bad fruit that that belief has produced is a absolute reckless and wayward living. I already paid my dues. I already said the thing. I'm, I'm good. And so I can live my life as per normal, and I know at the end of the day, I'm good. I'm going to end up in the good place. Don't chance it. Don't trifle with this important question. Don't play a fool with it. Don't put it off. You know, I just got news that uh, a friend's friend, you know, I, I met the person, uh, a man in, the man in person you know, last night, he's 29 years old, 29 years old, going for a job. And he had a massive heart attack. He died. 29 years old. Massive heart attack and died. Life on earth is but a vapor. Absolutely fragile. You never know comes and goes. Here today, gone tomorrow. Subject of eternal destination. It's one that you need to grapple with right now and not put it off to another day. Yeah, making sense? Let's look at Revelation chapter 3. And um, the book of Revelations kicks off with a series of letters that the now aged Apostle John writes to seven churches in Asia Minor. The letters carry in it affirmation, exhortation, comfort, as well as correction. And in Revelation 3, we read about uh, John's letter to the church in Laodicea. And let's read this together. It goes, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Could wish I could wish you are cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Next slide. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I just want to make a quick note on rich. Most of the time when we read the Bible, when we see the warnings to the rich in the Bible that you know, it's really hard for a rich men to enter the kingdom of God, we go, oh, that's for like the billionaires. That's for like the really, really rich people. That's for the people that own like six cars. But how many of you know that majority of the world's population today live on $2 a day? Majority of the world population. By that statistic, you and I, Singaporeans, people in this gathering, are some of the richest people on the planet. When you read that word rich, it's talking about you. It's talking about me. You might go, oh, I don't have a lot. So get, get over that. <laughs> it's talking about you. Let's, let's go back to the slide. It says this, no, the, the previous slide. It says that because you are neither cold nor hot, I wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The word vomit, you know, it translates to like projectile. It's like not just a... It's like I'll spit you out of my mouth. Violent. And some preachers have preached this verse like, oh, you know, you have to be either hot for Jesus or cold and go to hell. You know, I wish for you to be hot or just forget it and give it up and be cold. No, the, the verse doesn't mean that, you know. If you understand this context, this will bring greater clarity on what uh, John is trying to say. Laodicea was a prosperous city and the problem with that city is that it had no natural water source. And so it got hot water from a spring for bathing and it got cold water from a mountain for drinking. And sometimes the water would get delayed in its delivery and lose its temperature. Lukewarm water was something that would greatly upset the Laodicean community. They would remark that this lukewarm water is utterly useless, worthless, ineffective. And so what John is trying to say is this. Do not be lukewarm. Do not stay on the fence. Do not play the middle ground. 
be extreme, be radical in your faith. Most of us approach Christianity in this manner. This Christianity, it has different degrees, stages to it. I'm in stage one, the Charmander of the Charizard kind of thing. <laughs> I'm little Charmander. I, I'm not, not going to fight the big battles. I'm not going to go after the big guys. I'm just going to do my little thing and let the big boys, let those like radical Xiaon guys, let those like crazy guys, you know, do the works, do the Christian thing. But I've said my prayer. I'm good with my standard of living. I'm good with where I'm at now. I'm okay. Christianity is not a skill. It's not something that you can pick and choose. It's not a buffet table. It's an all or nothing approach. It's either you're in or you're out. Clear cut. There's no, there are no gray areas, no middle lines in the kingdom of God. You're black or white. You're Christian or not. There's no super Christian, mega Christian. None of that. Christian or not. All or nothing. Some of you may go, I'm okay with being a lukewarm Christian. Can I say to you this? That lukewarmness is not a personality type. It is a perilous state of the soul. It is a sign that your soul is lost and in danger. Let's look at the next slide. It says this. Next slide. <clears throat> because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. How many of you will think that wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked are great words to describe believers? I once was blind, but still am blind and work in process. No. John was making this statement to the church. He says this, because of your lukewarmness, because of your lack of zeal for the Lord, because you still play the middle ground, you still sit on the fence and you have not made a real decision for God. You think that you have made a decision for God by making a proclamation, but your decision ought to look like a lifestyle change and you have not done any of that because you are in this state. You are miserable, poor, blind, naked. Your soul is in danger. A perilous state. Lukewarmness is not a personality type. It's a sign of danger. It's a sign that you need to get that issue settled. That making sense. Passionless Christianity is an oxymoron and should never be an option. Passionless Christianity is an oxymoron. We look at fully given Christians and call them radical, reckless, when in fact the most reckless thing you can do in life is to not be fully reckless for Jesus. We call radical today what Jesus expects of every believer. This story I like to read about a man named Nathan Barlow. I believe this would be an inspiration to all of us here. Nathan Barlow was a medical doctor missionary who served in the nation of Ethiopia for 60 years. He dedicated his life to helping people plagued with a condition called mossy foot. It's a condition that causes ulcers and swelling in the feet and lower legs, and the subsequent deformity and infection makes people with mossy foot equivalent to lepers. Once, it was said that Nathan had a toothache and the pain was so intense that he had to leave the mission field in order to be treated. And as he left his beloved Ethiopia and went to a dentist, Nathan then told his dentist that he never wanted to leave the mission field because of his teeth ever again. And so he had his dentist pull out all of his remaining teeth and give him false ones so that the work in the field wouldn't be hindered. Radical. Crazy to some of us, right? Seal. We often call radical. Often call the lives of these people radical, what Jesus expects us to live with and by. Matthew 13, 44 says this. You have that side, no? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. I'm often inspired by the story of a Mozambican man who encountered Jesus for the first time 
and went to a church service. And at church service, a Mozambican man with nothing to his name, with only the clothes on his back, no money in his pockets, sat there as the offering bucket was passed by him. Looking at the bucket with absolutely nothing to offer, he looked down his shirt and ripped off every single button and threw it into the bucket. When you truly know the magnitude of the God that you serve, it will compel you to give all. If you're still measuring the magnitude of your offering, you have not discovered the measure of its worth. Life that gives all. And that is not an option. That is the life that Christ compels all of us as Christians to live by. A sold out, radical, passionate life. I'll close off with this and I want to read to you a profile of lukewarm people. And I've adapted this from a book called Crazy Love and it's written by a man named Francis Chan. I read it once a year and every year when I read it, you know, it cuts deep into my soul, deep into my spirit and I encourage you to buy this book you know, and you know, you can accumulate order and we'll get it sorted out for you. But I read this book, okay, like a big, I read the book of Romans, you know. I read this book in one sitting. I give myself half a day and I read this book from cover to cover because it so cuts my spirit. And I read it, uh, I've been reading it every year, okay, for the last six years. And I believe, you now this will challenge you, this profile of lukewarm people. Are you ready? This is how we're going to end. I believe lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They only want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. They don't generally hate sin and aren't truly sorry for it. They are merely sorry because God is going to punish them. Lukewarm people don't really believe that this new life Jesus offers is better than the old sinful one. The next one. Lukewarm people attend church fairly regularly because it is what is expected of them. Though they are physically present, their hearts are far from God. They do it because it's the token thing. They do it because it's what Christians do. But though they are present, their hearts are far from the Lord. Lukewarm people give money to charity and to the church as long as it doesn't impinge on their standard of living. In plenty, it is easy to be generous, hard to be sacrificial. In lack, it is easy to be sacrificial, hard to be generous. Christian giving has to be marked by both generosity and sacrifice. Lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what is right when they are in conflict. They desire to fit in both in church and outside of church. They care more about what people think of their actions than what God thinks of their hearts and lives. Just because something is popular and culturally acceptable, it does not make it right. Lukewarm people do whatever is necessary to keep themselves from feeling too guilty. They want to do the bare minimum to be good enough without it requiring too much of them. They ask, how far can I go before it's considered a sin? I have a massive fear of heights. And because I have a fear of heights, I never play near the edge of a cliff. Some things don't elaborate. Okay. Next one. Lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, yet they do not act. They assume such action is for extreme Christians, not average ones. Next one. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith because they do not want to be rejected. They fear others more than they fear Jesus. Next one. Lukewarm people say they love Jesus and He is indeed part of their lives, but only a part. They give Him a section of their time, their money, and their thoughts, but He isn't allowed to control their lives. It's an all or nothing gospel. Next one. Lukewarm people will serve God and others, but there are limits to how far they will go or how much time, money, and energy they are willing to give. Last two. Lukewarm people do not live by faith. Their lives are so structured that they never have to. They don't have to trust God if something unexpected happens. They have their savings accounts. 
They don't need God to help them. They don't need to generally seek out what life God will have them live. They have life figured and mapped out. The truth is, their lives wouldn't look much different if they suddenly stopped believing in God. It's a practice, no? I, I call it practical atheism. It's in the supposed practical things in life. We go, we don't need God to be involved in these things. I'm going to figure it out. And God is absent from the things we do in daily life. The last one. Look one people think about life on earth much more often than eternity in heaven. Without eternity as our cornerstone of logic and reasoning, every decision we make will be a short-sighted decision. I'd like to read us the last story before we close. This is a story of a man named Stan Gerlach. And this was something written by Stan Gerlach's pastor. It goes like this. As a pastor, I'm often called upon when life vanishes like a mist. One of the most powerful examples I've seen of this was Stan Gerlach, a successful businessman who was well-known in the community. Stan was giving an eulogy at a memorial service when he decided to share the gospel. At the end of his message, Stan told the mourners, you never know when God is going to take your life. At that moment, there's nothing you can do about it. Are you ready? Then Stan sat down, and shortly he fell over and died. His wife and sons tried to resuscitate him, but there was nothing they could do, just as Stan had said a few minutes earlier. This is the pastor talking. He said, I was asked to share a word with everyone gathered. There were children, grandchildren, neighbors, and friends. This was Stan's, at Stan's funeral service. And he opened his Bible to Matthew 10, verse 32 to 33. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. I asked everyone to imagine what it must have felt like for Stan. One moment, he was at a memorial service saying to the crowd, this is who Jesus is. The next, he was before God hearing Jesus say, this is who Stan Gerlach is. One second, he was confessing Jesus. A second later, Jesus was confessing him. It happens that quickly, and it could happen to any of us. In the words of Stan Gerlach, are you ready? Eternity is not something to be chanced, glanced over, or trifled with. It bears with it an eternal consequence. If you love someone, you will confront them. Love void of confrontation isn't love at all. Because Christ loves you, He will confront you on a matter of eternity. Don't chance it. Don't wait another day. Get your lives in order. Get right today. Have your soul secured by its eternal destination. Can we stand?